We are in Revelation this morning. We're in the book of Revelation for the next two weeks. If you've been here the last couple of years, you'll remember that every uh, year I kind of change it as we go into Christmas, change it as we go into Easter, and we go into a different book. We look at something from a slightly different way and a different perspective. So over the next two weeks, this week and next week, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. When I start thinking about uh, Easter, Easter church attendance goes up for whatever reason. Um, people want to come out. There's, there's something socially still that we are able to play on and draw people back in around this time of year. I rejoice in that. I rejoice that, that we still, in some sense, have a hold on people that they have this, this kind of homing beacon that goes off around Christmas. They want to be found in church. Around Easter, they want to be found in church. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. It gives us an opportunity to stand before people and and to encourage them to continue to walk in that exercise, to continue to come, to continue to be invested, to continue to put themselves in the place to hear the word. And we need to encourage them to that, not say, well, I haven't seen you since last year. It's good to see you again. Let me set my watch. I guess I'll see you again next year. I mean, this is entirely uh, just kind of browbeating people who struggle to come out. We want to be an encouragement to those we encounter, not to be somebody who's keeping a list of their attendance, lest I begin to keep track of your attendance. Amen? You shouldn't have said amen to that. That was a trick question. It was a trick amening. We're going to do many of those today. And so in line with that, I always try and pick something. I think if I could get just one or two sermons to really hit somebody with, what would I go with? And I really think the issue of who Jesus is is so critically important to everybody we come into contact with because we find there are many Jesuses in our community. Almost every week without fail, we have somebody come into the church and they want help with one thing or another. And we are so thankful that we have the resources to be able to provide help so that we might have this person-to-person engagement with people and to share the gospel with them. So they'll come in, they need gas, they need food. We give them the gas, we give them the food, and then we share the gospel with them. And a lot of it ends up being kind of like a dialogue. And so it's, hey, you know, where'd you grow up? Did you grow up here? Okay, have you ever been involved with church before? What was that like? And and somewhere along the line, we get to the question of, who then would you say Jesus is? It's almost like they share a script. It's almost like they share a script. They have this this idea, this conception. It centers on, well, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the church. My grandmother, she has a really strong faith. I know who Jesus is. I was like, well, could you, say I walked up to you on the street, and I I don't know anything about Jesus. Let's just forget the fact that I'm pastoring a church. Who, who would you tell me Jesus is? And I'm like, oh man, he is this really, really good guy. He, he's, he's, he's amazing. I was like, what's so amazing about him? Like, he, did, he did good stuff, man. He, I mean, he, he, uh, he died. I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's something. That's something we all die. What's so special about that? And, they're like, and then like coaxing along, maybe we'll get to the fact that he rose from the grave. And, and I have one lady in, and I said, let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus is God? Do you think Jesus and, and God the Father, do you think they're both God? And she said, I'm going to tell you something. You're probably going to think I'm crazy. I said, well, I don't know. I've met with some truly crazy people, so you've got to really raise the bar. I said, okay, hit me, hit me. What do you think? Jesus and God are the, are the same God? And she said, I think. I think Jesus is probably God. I think Jesus is probably divine. I said, well, I'm so sorry to disappoint you. I don't find this shocking or crazy. I find this directly in line with the New Testament. I find this directly in line with what Scripture says about Jesus. He is divine. That's why his death is effectual. That's why his rising is possible. And that's why we're able to have hope and salvation in his name. 
And she said, okay, I thought I was just going out on a limb. I said, sister, this isn't a limb, this is a trunk. This is the tree. And she said, sit down now. As we look at Revelation, it begins to answer the question of who Jesus is. But see, it's not just the, the critically misunderstood that we see and we say, oh, well, we know that Jesus is God. We know that he raised from the dead. We recognize that Jesus in, in our mind, in our understanding, in our conception and application in life, this is who we make Jesus. We love the fact that he died for us. Many of us are orthodox in our understanding of who he is and what he did for us. But we take Jesus. Listen to me. This is the church. We take Jesus. We crucify him on the cross of convenience. We take Jesus and all the demands that he brings to us. And we strip all those things away. We effectively neuter the power of the gospel in our lives because it is more palatable it is easier to handle, and so we take all the difficult things that it brings on to us, and we say, that's not the Jesus that could sit on my shelf beside the elf on my shelf. That's the Jesus that wants to lord over me and rule my life. Can I tell you, there is only one Jesus. And he's not the Jesus crafted in the image of convenience. He's the Jesus we see in the scriptures, and he's the Jesus, as we look at Revelation, who's able to radically transform and own your life. And he's the only Jesus available today. Let me read Revelation 1, 1 through 8, and then we'll walk through it together. John writes, and he says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He had made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and all the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. For the seven churches that are in Asia grace to you in peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne... And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on the earth, to him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And they all said, Amen. He goes on, he says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, and they all said, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. We see this amazing thing take place within this, this this triune picture. The Trinity is fully displayed. We understand what Jesus has come to do, and we understand exactly who God is. And in light of that, we understand who we are to be in light of who Jesus is. Look how he opens this up. He He tells us effectively what this book is. Many of us, for whatever reason, are afraid to study the book of Revelation, or we refer to it as Revelations. No, it is Revelation. Notice this is singular. It's the one revelation that God gave through an angel. It is, it is by God about Jesus through an angel to John. Do you understand how that works? He impacts it for us here in these first few verses. He says, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is not about how to be a doomsday prepper. 
It's not. It's not about how to, to look at your Bible and look through and track the stock market and be like, oh, man, I saw this thing happening in Russia. Sell, sell, sell. It's not this thing where we go through and say, all right, now we need to buy real estate that's more inward because the levels of sea are going to rise and we need to be close to it. This is not what Revelation is for. Like if you're reading Revelation, you have the stock page beside, close one and read the other. Right? Revelation is about Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it comes from God. It says God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He is this unfolding revelation. And so John is writing. He's sending it to these seven churches in Asia. And he's describing some things that are going to happen immediately. And some things they need to look towards. Understand this is God's ultimate fulfillment. This is how he's going to bring about the culmination of the age. The end of all things. Look what he goes on to say. He says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So God communicates about Jesus through an angel to John. And through John's writings to us. Verse 2. Who bore witness, this is what he did. He bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John's letting us know what he's doing. And so one of the reasons that that it's important that you know the Old Testament well is John is frequently pulling on these strings and strands of Old Testament theology and Old Testament illusion and finding them here in the words of the book of Revelation. And so he's bearing witness to the word of God and then the testimony of Jesus, those things that he heard Jesus say and those things that Jesus is saying to John through this angel, through this intermediary. And even all that he saw. And this is why when you go through the book of Revelation, you see some imagery and you're like, I don't know what that is. But I just, like if I started drawing that out, it would be very, very confusing. John is metaphorically a lot of times using imagery to convey meaning. Look what he goes on here. This is the only book in the Bible that you receive a blessing just from hearing it. I'm speaking a blessing over you today and I'm receiving a blessing myself. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy prophecy and blessed are those who hear don't be afraid to read the book of revelation in engaging in it and he's describing here this first century setting of church where somebody would get up and they would proclaim the word and other people would hear the word and then they would talk through the word together and he's saying you receive a blessing from that you receive a blessing from that but look what he ties to it and this is where we begin to to make sure that we understand what he's what he's saying He goes on and he says, and who keep what is written in it. We need to make sure that we're never a people who merely hear the word, get built up a little bit, and then fall away. But the trajectory of what John is communicating here is, blessed is the one who hears it, blessed is the one who speaks it, and the one who keeps what he has heard. The word should have a profound impact on our life. The word, the word should bring about life change in us. The word is what is, is being effectual in us. It's not our ability to pull ourselves together and quit being the schmuck that we've always been. It is the word being applied to our hearts, which is producing life change, not our ability to develop a really quick six steps to not being a schmuck anymore. Do you understand? What's changing us? The word. What's changing us? There you go. There you go. Got to make sure the whole class is following along. Blessed is the one who hears this word. Look at verse 4. You're going to notice, if you read much of the book of Revelation, that John uses the number 7 a lot. And now that, <clears throat> in using the number 7, 
he's not always trying to convey numerically that there are seven, like if you go to the grocery store, I need seven chicken breasts, I need seven uh, boxes of cereal. These are odd numbers. It's prime and that's good. But what is he trying to convey? You see, for him and his understanding and his cultural uh, setting, seven was a number that stood for completeness or wholeness. So a lot of times when we go through and we see the number seven show up, he's not just concretely referring to just these seven or seven of these things and that's it. But he's trying to give us a sense that this is a whole or this is a complete group. So when he comes into this and he says the seven churches that are in Asia, there are more than seven churches in Asia at the time of his writing. There are many churches that he left off the list. And so what he uses in these seven churches are seven churches that programmatically fit for every church. Some of the churches are doing well in in one respect, poorly in another respect. Other churches are just doing poorly in every respect. And then occasionally you'll find a church that's doing well in all respects. And so what he's saying in going to this is saying, this letter finds application in every church, just as it finds application in these particular churches. If you ever find a perfect church, this is the advice I always give to people. If you ever find a perfect church, please, please, please don't ever join it. Don't ever join it. Because if you ever find a perfect church and you join it, you're going to upset the equilibrium and you will be the cause of church strife. There is no such thing as a perfect church. They just don't exist. They exist in other cities that you can never go to, right? They exist in other cities that you can never go to. There is no such thing as a perfect church. Every church you're ever going to be a part of is going to have a problem. In some of those churches, you're going to be the problem. This is how it's going to work. So he writes to these seven churches. Now look at the information that he communicates to us about Jesus. We find out in this first section that Jesus is a part of the Godhead. The Godhead consists of three parts. You have God the Father, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Son. The orthodox understanding of Christianity only understands Jesus as being a part of the Trinity. Each one of the parts of the Trinity are fully divine And each one of the parts of the Trinity are fully God. They are separate, but they are together as one. There is no metaphor that can adequately describe it. Everything you might seek to describe it is going to ultimately fail in one part, fashion, or another. And so we understand it to be wholly other and mystery. But Jesus, to understand who he is, he's not just some guy who happened along and some bad things happened to him. Jesus is a member of the Trinity. Jesus is fully God of fully God. Look what he says. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. In describing God the Father, John goes in and he says, this is what you need to understand, that God the Father, the Trinity is effectively sending a greeting to these seven churches, and by extension, sending a greeting to us. And he says, grace and peace to you. Even though you're preparing to head into the midst of tremendous difficulty, into the midst of tremendous persecution, grace and peace to you. And he ties his understanding of God back to Exodus 3.14. In Exodus 3.14, when Moses went to God and God was manifesting himself in the burning bush, and he said, now when I go to these people and I tell them all the things you're telling me to tell them, who should I say has sent me? And what is God's response? He says, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. God is is ever existing. And this is what this formula gives us. This is what this, this line of text helps us to understand that God has always been always is, and always will be. 
And so we take that understanding, we understand that the Trinity always was, always is, and always will be. God is eternal. He eternally existed in the past, and he will eternally exist on into the future. Do we understand this? Because our understanding of who God is and his ability, our understanding of his ability and, and, and rationale and reasons for being able to make Uh, demands in our lives centers on our understanding of who he is. God is ever-existent. There is never a time when he was not. God is ever-existent. And so this message of grace and peace is from the one who is and who was and who is to come. Flip over to Zechariah 4. Zechariah 4. If you're wondering where that is, go Zechariah, Malachi, Matthew. If you're wondering where that is, just go to the left. Eventually you'll get there. Go left far enough, you hit the table of contents, and that'll tell you exactly where it's at. I've discovered over the last week, the minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament are the hardest to learn. And what each one of you need is a six-year-old practicing for their Awana deal. And just going through, and it's supremely embarrassing when your six-year-old says, Dad, why did you pause? Do you not know what book comes next? It will cure you. It will cure you. Zechariah. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. This is what we see kind of referenced here. Remember I said that the number of seven, the number seven is programmatically used throughout the book of Revelation to, to describe the sense of wholeness or, or completeness. Zechariah chapter 4 verses 2 through 6. He, and he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, look at number seven, and seven lips on each lamp, again the number seven, and there are two olive trees by it, one on each side of the bowl, and one on on its left and one on its right. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this... This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so effectively, when Zechariah is looking out and he sees these seven lampstands of gold, and he sees them around, and he's wondering what exactly this is. And so he queries the angel, what is this? I don't understand what's going on. What is this thing that I see? And the angel describes it as being a manifestation of the Spirit of God going out. It's giving visual representation to the angel of God going out. So we were, to the Spirit of God going out. And so we recognize that in this, he's not talking about these seven spirits, but in essence, more this idea of the sevenfold, the sevenfold Spirit of God or presence of God. And so what we see is that God's spirit is not diminished. And so how many churches has he listed so far? He said there are seven churches. And for each one of these churches, there is an equal amount of the eternal and infinite presence of the Holy Spirit who is able to be universally present at this church, at Highland Terrace, at Family Fellowship, at First Dallas, at Wesley Methodist, And so there is no shortage of the Holy Spirit to go around. And so he's showing John, and just as the angel showed Zechariah, that the Holy Spirit is able to be in each and every gathering of the Lord, which is a serious blessing. Amen? So he goes in, he says, grace and peace to you from the Holy Spirit, 
the one who's gathered around his throne and present in each and every congregation. Look what he goes on. Now he begins to describe who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The New Testament is largely an accounting of the teachings of Jesus and then an application of that teaching and kind of furtherance of the gospel. The gospel exists because of Jesus' sacrifice, and he's described here as being the faithful witness. He's further described, he says, he is the firstborn of the dead. Jesus' death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection ushers in for us an opportunity, the ability to be born again. So we are born again, never to die again spiritually, even though each of us will die again physically. And so we recognize that in Jesus, in recognizing that he is the firstborn, he's the first in, in preeminence, he is over all in his death, burial, and resurrection. All died before Jesus, but at Jesus' death, in his resurrection, he overcame the grave. And in overcoming the grave, he opens up for us an opportunity to receive salvation in his name. And in doing that, his death is unlike any other death that has ever occurred over the history of mankind. He says he's a faithful witness. He says he's the firstborn of the dead. And look what he says here. And the ruler of kings on earth. Every conception that we try and make of Jesus that puts him lower than ourselves, that puts our convenience lower than him, that puts our level of commitment lower than him, gets absolutely obliterated when it comes to this. He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead, and he rules the kings of earth. What a comfort. What a comfort. We begin to see his power. We begin to see his might. We begin to see his ability to exercise control over those who sit and reign supreme according to man's eye. According to our perception, and we look at and we see politicians, we see despots, we see all these people rising to the top, and, and, and our tendency, our tendency is to say that they are on top, that they are making rules, they are making regu- regulations. But what we see from this is that spiritually looking at it, looking at it from a spiritual side, we see that Jesus reigns supreme. This should put the Christian at rest no matter what election season and how great and how amazing any candidate that you would ever seek to, to raise to the highest office in our land. Amen? Amen? Jesus rules all. Jesus rules all. He is the ruler over all the kings on earth. Look what he says here. He begins to apply it to us. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You need to understand that when he comes into this, he's describing Jesus in his relationship to you, Christian. And he comes in, and he doesn't just say he loved you. He's described as this personification of love. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Now, this is a really simple song we teach our children, and it doesn't have a whole lot of words, and so it's hard for me to mess up. But this is so much more than a song, so much more than a Christian maxim that we teach people to to emphatically respond to. This is a truth not a truism. This is a truth that that is at the center of what it is to be a Christian, to be ever receiving the love of Jesus. Do you recognize that you ever receive the love of Jesus? 
from the moment that you professed him king, the moment you confessed your sins and began to walk in repentance, he changed your heart and made you spiritually alive. His love was being effectual in your heart. His love, which was held in abeyance by your obstinacy, by your refusal to confess your sins and submit your life to him, became effectual for you. God's love rests on you through the person of Jesus, who's described here as being the one who loves us. Do we relish in this? Do we rejoice in this? In the midst of tremendous difficulty, in the midst of strife, in the midst of family drama, in the midst of all these things that feel like chaos and out of control, in the midst of profound sadness, we are loved by Jesus. We have to believe this. We need to quit being these people with these dour expressions on our face, walking around and everybody saying, I'm sorry, are you trying to act like Eeyore? Have you been watching too much Winnie the Pooh lately? Oh, woe is me, I can't stand. You know, like this is kind of what we are. We are people who are infinitely loved by a great God through his son, Jesus. His love rests on you. Not because of how good, great, and amazing you are, but because of how merciful, how kind, and how loving he is and has been towards you. And his Holy Spirit has sealed you. God's love rests on you. Allow him to love you. Look what he says. He says he loves us. And some of us have sought to entrap ourselves by our past mistakes. The things we did in the past, the things we struggled with before we came to faith, the things that are still finding a root and, and, and kind of thriving in our lives. But look what he says here. He loves us and he has freed us. He has freed us by, from our own sins by his blood. Your sins once held you captive. You were an adulterer, you were a pornographer, you were prideful, you were an idolater. You were loved by everybody around you. A couple of weeks ago we talked about being a slave to being good. Everybody looked at you and said, this is a good person. This is the type of person, they're a hardworking employee. The great news of Jesus Christ is he didn't save us so that we might be a slave to being good. He saved us from being good. He saved us from all of our failures. The work of the enemy calls us to live in light of what our failures were and to be hamstrung by them. You've been divorced. You've been antagonistic towards your spouse. You've been a jerk. You've been addicted to pornography. You've been addicted to to, to whatever it is, to being lazy, to backsliding. All of these things are who you formerly were. Quit living in light of who you were and live in light of who you are. His blood set you free. His blood set you free. No, 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 no. Recognize in this, it is not your ability to cling to him which keeps you free. It's his ever-existing love for you which keeps you free. Do you understand the difference there? One saves you to a gospel that now you have to absolutely keep each and every day. And if you fail, the gospel's gone. The other saves you to a gospel that he keeps. And his keeping you is tied to his love for you, which is always being manifest in your life regardless of how you feel in the moment. Each of us struggle. 
Some days you just feel like giving up. You feel like, oh, my past mistakes are too much. I'm too far away. My family, it's just like this roller coaster of my life. They all want to get off the ride, but it's the only ride I can be on. What we recognize in this is that his love saves us from who we were and saves us from who we try and become even today. You are not enslaved to anyone other than Jesus. And his love keeps you free. Amen? Jesus. Look what he goes on to say. He has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. He has made us a kingdom. We've been in 1 Peter. Flip over there quickly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes to a group that is struggling to find identity. They're struggling to find out who they are in light of the fact that they weren't raised uh, Jewish, and so they don't have this rich heritage following before them. Their heritage stems from being a people displaced. And what is their displacement? What is the cause of it? They are Christians. And on the basis of being Christians, they find themselves living in the midst of a land which is hostile to their existence. They're not understood. They're not readily accepted. And so he helps them to find their identity, not in their community, but their identity in Christ. And so he comes to chapter 2 in verses 9 and 10, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a kingdom for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you from where? From out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now look, he's getting right at the heart of their issue. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The way that God makes us a kingdom is by placing Jesus over us as our king. Our allegiance in all things is applied to Jesus. It's not to us, it's not to our timetable, it's not to how many kids we want to have, it's not to what career we'd like to have, it's not to the person we'd like to be married to or or no longer married to, it's not to the job we'd like to have, the street we'd like to live on, the car we'd like to drive. Our allegiance in all things solely applies to, find itself in submission to, Jesus, who he is. He is a king over us. We are loyal subjects in his kingdom, and our job as subjects in his kingdom is to praise him forevermore. Our lives should be a concert of praise. Our lives should be lived, according to Romans, as a spiritual worship before Jesus. This means every morning I wake up, whether I come to work here or I work picking up trash along the side of the highway or I am gainfully unemployed, Every moment of my life should be lived in worship to King Jesus because he alone sits on the throne and I don't get to come anywhere near it unless it's to worship him. Jesus, he's made us a kingdom. He's made us a people. He's gathered us together for the express worship of worshiping him. Look what he said next. He said, we are priests. The priests would gather Yearly, they would gather day after day to offer sacrifices. Christian, your sacrifice to Jesus is obedience in his name, is worship in his name. And so he's called us to be priests to his God and Father. Now look what he says. After all this description of Jesus, starting back in verse 5, 
He says, he's the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on the earth, him who loves us and has freed us uh, from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. After all this, all this description of who Jesus is, look what he calls us to. He says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When we recognize Jesus for who he is, our lives are lived in loving submission, worship, and adoration to him. It's not to our wife. It's not to our husband. It's not to our friend. It's not to our church. It's not to our community. It's not to a political ideology. Our lives are solely ever lived in submission and worship to the one true king, Jesus Christ. We recognize that Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday. In Matthew 21, he comes in. And the people were gathered around, and, and, and Jesus had been teaching, and this is drawing close to the end of his, of his time on earth. And all this hubbub was stirred up about who he is, and so he sent the disciples out in Matthew 21 to go and to get a donkey, and so that he might ride into it. And so he comes riding into the city. He comes riding into the city on this donkey, and everybody is just, just kind of, you know, they have the branches, and they're waving them around, and it says they're laying their coats on the ground, and the crowds went before him, and they followed him. They were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. highest. They're calling out salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. He is the one who keeps us safe. He is the one who protects us. And so they're calling out, and they are praising him with every fiber of their being they don't know who he is they're caught up in in the fervor in the excitement of worshiping him hosanna in the highest it says and when he entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred up now look at this question it's very telling who is this everybody was all stirred up everybody was all excited but the question that permeated the city was who is this They were excited, but they didn't understand who he was. And so the response comes back, and they say, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, they don't understand who he is. And when given this explanation of who he is, we find this explanation in and of itself to be anemic, lacking. If we just understand Jesus to be a prophet, if we just understand him to be a good teacher, if you just understand Jesus to be this guy who brings life enhancement, he's the guy that helps my wife and I to get along. He's the guy that I try and live up to, and man, he was such an amazing teacher. This is this theory of the atonement referred to as the moral influence theory. Effectively, it's this, that Jesus died not to save you, but to have a profound impact on society. And Jesus' impact on society is calling people to be self-deprecating, to seek the good of others and not themselves. This Jesus can change your actions, but he cannot change your heart. The Jesus who you just look to as a moral encourager and a moral guide can only ever change your actions, but can never ever change your heart. What we understand about Jesus is that he loves us and that his blood freed us from our sins. We were trapped and enslaved, whether we recognize it or not, and it's the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone which can set us free. And then one other thing we have to discover about Jesus 
All praise and glory and adoration belong to, the, belong to him, should be directed towards God. But we serve a Jesus who's coming again. Many of us are called into this temptation to live our lives that, such as that Jesus is never going to come back. He's never going never to come and never going to visit us. And some of us like that. If we were honest in our hearts, we'd say, having like 60 silver years to figure this out, and then when I hit like 70, 73, I mean, then start like really walking for Jesus passionately, or limping for Jesus passionately, or rolling for Jesus passionately, or just laying there for Jesus passionately. Like, this is, this is kind of what I want, if you're 73 and you're still very ambulatory, kudos. I don't know if I will be, and so it's like I get a bum knee at 30, so... We'll just wait and see. But if this is your thought that in 60 years or in 50 years or in 20 years, or would I just make it past this thing, I'm going to be able to live for Jesus passionately. Friend, you don't understand Jesus. Jesus is not your parent. You remember how you were able to put off mom and dad? Go clean your room. Yeah, yeah, I'll get right on that. You go in your room, you close the door. Mom and dad are like, oh. He's doing such a good job. I mean, I hear all this industriousness going on in there. And mom and dad finally open the door. And they're like, what? You painted the walls with a Sharpie? Look, mom, there you are. I'm going to show you where mom's at. Jesus is not this absent-minded parent who's gone away that we say, oh, I'm just so glad he's gone. If that's our understanding of Jesus, then we don't understand him at all. Look what he goes on to tell us. He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. He's quoting here in Daniel, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. He's coming with the clouds in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. They watched him ascend and the disciples stood and they waited. And the angel came and said, what are you waiting for? Just as he left, he's going to come again. Go and get busy. Jesus is coming again in the call of John in the book of Revelation by the, medi- by the mediator of God. We need to live our lives as, as if he's going to come back today, not tomorrow. We live each and every minute. We take our lives, we take our career advancement, we take all our decision making, and we do this in light of the fact that he could come back any minute and our prayer for us is that he would come back now, but our prayer for those who don't yet know him is that he would give grace to them, that he would allow us to go and to share the gospel with them so that they might come to know him before he returns. He says he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. It's going to be a global event, not because of television, but because of his omnipresence. He's going to be such that we are able to see him no matter where we are. Look what he goes on to say, quoting Zechariah 12, 10. He says, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The dead will rise and everyone will have to give an account of their decision on the person of Jesus. The way we live our lives is a great indication of where we stand before Jesus. If in the process of making decisions, if it never occurs to you to submit this before his throne, then that is a terrible indication of your submission to Jesus. Some of us as Christians, we've just never been taught this. We've never been taught that our, our ideas and our plans need to be submitted to him. And so it's this great, great course corrective for us that we might submit ourselves before Jesus. 
For some of us, we look out and we know we have lost family members. We know it's our, our wife, our husband, our cousin, our neighbor. For some of us, it's our grandfather. Some of us, it's our, our dearly beloved children. And so there's this urgency that it creates in us. Not to grow lazy and saying, I'll get around to them, I'll talk to them later. But it produces this urgency in us whereby we want to go out and share the gospel with them now. It should produce this feeling in us whereby on Sunday mornings when we hear someone talk about the gospel, we want to jump up and go tell ten people about it just to make sure they've heard. Just to make sure they know that God loves them. Just to make sure they know that he has set them free from their sins, if they would confess their sins to him, submit their lives to him, and let him reign in their hearts as Lord and Savior. He's coming back. And we're all going to have to give an account. We're all going to have to give an account. Look what he says in verse 8. Speaking back to God the Father, notice he has is, he is sandwiched both these things together. He begins with God the Father, and now here he comes back and he ends. And he wants us to understand the totality of God's power, the totality of his presence. And so he says, he takes the the beginning and the ending letter of the Greek alphabet. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm everything. I'm everything. I'm over everything. He says, who is and who was and who is to come. He is the God who has always been. He is the God who now exists. And he's the only God who forever will be. And then he offers something that's pretty interesting. And it would have been fascinating. It would have been alarming for John's audiences as they hear it. Now, it's rendered here in the English, the Almighty. But what he takes is, he takes this word that the emperors currently refer to themselves as, the autocrator. This one who ruled themselves, or this absolute ruler. That's how they would refer to themselves. It's how people knew that the emperor referred to themselves. And what he does is he says, God is the Ponto Crator. He is over all. He is the ruler over all. So even though the emperor comes in and says he is the absolute ruler, John comes in and says, you don't understand. This This God who was, this God who is, And this God who forever will be is over even the emperor. You see, friends, when we understand Jesus for who he is, Jesus as as a part of the Godhead in the midst of the Trinity, as we understand him for what he has done for us, he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross, that his blood was poured out to cover our sins, to cover my sins cover my anger, to cover my pride, to cover the times when I'm apathetic, to to cover family strife, to cover all of these things, to cover each and every one of Matt's failures. And we recognize that even in spite of my failures, he loves me, his love is poured out on me. When we reflect upon his high and exalted status, it causes us to want to live as faithful servants in the only kingdom where Jesus sits and reigns as king. Amen? Would you pray with me? Let's turn our hearts in prayer as we pray that God would 
call us to move out in accordance with the gospel. For some of us, that's submitting our hearts to the gospel, calling on him to save us. And for others of us, it's, it's changing the way that we live so that our lives might be a testimony of faithfulness to him. A spiritual act of worship. Perhaps for others, he's also calling you to go out and to share the gospel. To lovingly correct those around you for who Jesus is. He's not the God, the making, and the conception that you would like him to be, but he's the God that he is. That's the scriptures record him to be. Father, we thank you this morning that you have sent your spirit to be impactful in our hearts through the testimony of your word. And so, Father, I pray that you continue to stir in our hearts. God, that we would be a people found in submission to you. That our allegiance would reside with Christ the King. Father, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.